the reality is, since the election of Trump, the free world has no leader. I think pretending that Merkel can replace the US president, I think, is, is a way of pretending that there is still kind of a leader of the free world. The reality is, if the US president doesn't play that role, the free world has no leader. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. On this podcast, I talk a lot about whether Donald Trump is a threat to democracy in the United States. But there's also another big worry I have. The way in which Trump is already boosting authoritarian populists and straight-out dictators all across the world. Just take a snapshot of what's been happening around the world in the last weeks. In Russia, Vladimir Putin has arrested thousands of protesters. In Hungary, Viktor Orban is preparing to close down Central European University, a wonderful institution in Budapest. In Egypt, a huge number of opponents of General al-Sisi's dictatorships are routinely arrested, tortured, or even killed. In India, Narendra Modi has appointed a fundamentalist monk to be the chief minister of Uttar Pradesh, the country's biggest state. And strongman leaders are also moving to constrict the space of freedom in Poland and the Philippines, in Croatia and in Thailand. Now, let me be clear, Trump is not personally behind these developments, but he is enabling them in two big ways. First, he's very friendly with a lot of these leaders, Putin was the only statesman for which Donald Trump had consistent praise throughout the campaign. He has spoken very warmly of Viktor Orban and Narendra Modi. And when General Al-Sisi came to Washington recently, Trump told the press, we agree on so many things. I just want to let everybody know, in case there was any doubt, that we are very much behind President Al-Sisi. He's done a fantastic job. And second, Trump is not fighting for the basic rights of citizens in those countries. Under President Obama, Leaders in places like Hungary knew that they would at least have to pay a small price for doing something as radical as closing down an American university. And the President Trump, they're rightly getting the impression that America might cheer them on. And so one of the big prices that the world is paying for Donald Trump is already in evidence. The enemies of liberal democracy don't feel checked by the United States in many ways they feel encouraged by our country. And that is one of the tragedies of President Trump's presidency so far. I'm thrilled that Hans Kondnani is joining me in the studio today. I first came across Hans when I reviewed his book Utopia Auschwitz, Germany's 1968 Generation of the Holocaust, one of the best meditations on the way in which Germany's attempt to grapple with its past has shaped the country. Hans, a former foreign correspondent in Berlin and a senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund, is now known as one of the most insightful experts in German foreign policy, and his latest book, The Paradox of German Power, has drawn a lot of deserved praise. But since getting to know Hans, I've been deeply influenced by his thinking on any number of topics that have nothing to do with Germany, populism, Brexit, and the future of a liberal world order, to name just a few. Welcome to the studio, Hans. Thank you very much, Asha. Thanks for having me and for that very flattering introduction. Of course. Look, so we've gotten used to talking about populism as a kind of global phenomenon. Trump, Brexit, Le Pen, it all seems sort of connected and of one piece. But I know that you are a little sceptical about the way in which Brexit does or does not fit into that picture. Why? Right. So clearly there is this phenomenon throughout the West of populism. And whether we are talking about the United States with Trump or Britain with Brexit, 
or other countries in Western Europe, particularly continental Europe like France and Germany, with the Front National or the um, AFD in Germany, or countries in Central Europe uh, like Poland and Hungary. These phenomena clearly are linked, but it seems to me that there are also really important differences that I think sometimes get lost in the discussion. There's a kind of a shorthand that's emerging that's equating all of these phenomena and, and I think sort of losing some of the important um, differences between them. In a funny way, since you mentioned in your introduction my first book, um, Utopia Auschwitz, about 1968 in Germany. In a funny way, it reminds me of 1968, which was also this actually global phenomenon, perhaps one of the first phenomena of these kind that are both global, but there's a different national context in each case. And really what my book was about was about how 1968 was different in Germany than in other countries. And I wonder if there's a there's something similar um, now with the, with the rise of populism. There is a, a trend across the West, but there is in, these important differences. And in particular, um, and I'm perhaps biased as a Brit here, it does seem to me since I've been in the States since last September, I particularly want to insist on some of the differences between Brexit and Trump. So tell me why this stuff matters, right? Because look, like, yes, everything is different, right? I mean, in 1848, there's a huge wave of revolutions across Europe. And, and yes, there's local differences, of course, but there's something helpful in understanding them together. In 1968, there's all of yeah. the student revolutions and, and, and oppositional revolutions as well in Eastern Europe. And obviously, there are different local contexts. These people have different ideals. They are fighting against different existing political orders. So there are differences. But again, there's something really useful of thinking about them as part of the same phenomenon. So, you know, in the case of Brexit, what is it that we actually miss about Brexit? How is it that we misunderstand the political energy behind that or what effect it's going to have by thinking of it as part of this populist movement? I think we're all trying to wrap our heads around causes of populism, right? And it seems to me that, again, there's a slightly false debate between, you know, is this driven by economic factors, economic stagnation and dislocation, or is it driven by cultural factors? To me, it seems fairly clear that it's both of these things. And and the challenge actually is to understand the complex ways in which these economic and cultural factors interact with each other. But it seems to me it might be different in each of these cases. And this is why I think it's important. And the second reason is that We're also trying to think about how to respond to the rise of populism. In other words, solutions, particularly those of us who essentially do believe still in liberal democracy and economic liberalism as well. We're trying to think about how we can reform, particularly, it seems to me, economic liberalism in order to respond to to the rise of, of populism. And, and I think if you lose those differences, then I think it, you end up misunderstanding the causes and coming up with bad solutions. So let's talk concretely. I yeah. mean, what caused Brexit? And then perhaps we can talk about what caused Trump and we can see whether there's differences there or, yeah. or how those differences matter. I mean, and again, there clearly are similarities. So after Brexit, I spent quite a bit of time in the north of England trying to understand what had led people to to vote to leave the EU. I'm a Londoner, as the listeners may be able to tell from my accent. And, you know, the situation in the north of England is fairly similar, it seems to me, in many ways to the situation in US states like Wisconsin, well, perhaps not so much Wisconsin, but but Michigan, sort of post-industrial states where manufacturing industry has, has left. I mean, that's essentially the story of the, the north of England. So there are these similarities. But again, I do wonder whether actually in the British case, 
these economic factors are more important than the cultural factors. Then secondly, even if we look at just the cultural factors, so particularly the debate around immigration, it seems to me there's a hugely important difference here, despite all of the similarities in terms of the discourse around immigration in Britain and the United States. There is a really important difference, which is, I think, the context of the European Union and the principle of freedom of movement, which it seems to me means that Britain has actually factually surrendered control of at least immigration from other EU member states in a way that the United States hasn't. And so to put it very simply, and again, I admit that this may be my, my bias as a Brit here, but it seems to me that British frustration around uncontrolled immigration from the EU even though it's not something that I personally am angry about, both of my parents are immigrants, and you know I'm basically very much in favour of immigration. But despite that, it seems to me that the frustration that many Brits have about uncontrolled immigration from the EU is much more rational than the frustration that Americans have about immigration. Okay, let's think a little bit about these different constitutive elements, right? So I think we've we've talked a lot about the differences, but but we agreed that. There's some economic piece of a puzzle and there's yeah. some piece that's about identity and immigration and so on. So so let's start with the economic piece of it. So we're now sort of in the middle of a huge debate about the future of a global economy, right? Yeah. And it sometimes sounds as though it sort of is pinning people who are for globalization and neoliberalism right. on the one side against people who are sort of against both of those things. And I get the sense that you think there's a sort of really important distinction between globalization and neoliberalism. But these are actually sort of two different concepts that we throw together too much. So so what is that distinction and why does that matter? Well, again, this is something which I'm I'm really just starting to kind of think about and thinking aloud about here. Globalization and neoliberalism were almost two different terms for the same thing. And it is historically, it seems to me, very difficult to disentangle them because essentially both coincide historically and they're so intertwined that it is difficult to to separate them out. And often it did seem to be simply that critics of the developments of the last 30, 40 years would call this neoliberalism, particularly on the left, and see it as a policy choice. And supporters, defenders of those same developments would describe it as globalisation, partly in order to suggests that this is something inevitable that was driven by technology rather than a policy choice. And it can't be reversed, nor should it be reversed. Obviously, globalisation sounds better than neoliberalism. And it just became very, very difficult to disentangle these two concepts, neoliberalism and globalisation. What I've started to wonder about, though, since the Brexit vote, and in particular since the election of Trump, if you look at the messaging coming out of both the Theresa May government which is not a populist government, but has been, and funny, in a funny way, I think actually, I think of the Theresa May government as being more like what a Hillary government would have looked like rather than the Trump administration, in the sense that here you have somebody who is essentially a centrist who wanted to remain in the EU, but has been forced to respond to this populist surge, which is, I think, what a Hillary administration would have looked like if Hillary had, had won the election last year. I mean, on the economy, I think they're far apart, you know, and in a way they're coming from different starting points. But Theresa May is moving 
British politics pretty far to the right on economic issues. And I can't quite imagine Hillary Clinton doing the no, same look, in the that, United States. That's right. I mean, she's on the centre-left and, and May is on the centre-right. So perhaps it would be more accurate to say that Theresa May is somehow sort of equidistant between Hillary and Trump. In any case, she's not Trump, right? She's not a populist. This is sure, That's the main sure. point I wanted to make. But despite that, when you listen to, to the messaging coming out of the May government, but also the Trump administration, what seems to me very interesting, but confusing as well, is that you have these very different messages. You have some things which suggest that this is the end of neoliberalism. And Mark Blythe of Brown University has been writing this after the election of Trump, that this is the end of neoliberalism. What parts of her agenda does that mean? I mean? Especially for American listeners who may not be up on the last details of British politics. Why should we believe that Theresa May's government, which is quite right-wing in many ways, well, it is. is the end of neoliberalism? So if you look at the speech that she gave outside Number 10 on the day that she, she moved into Number 10, it was this kind of one nation conservatism speech. And it was a very anti-Thatcherite speech in many ways. Um, so, for example, she talked about society. Margaret Thatcher had famously said there's no such thing as society. There are just individuals. And she talked about, you know, in the context of the Brexit referendum, essentially of trying to make capitalism work for everyone, including the losers of globalisation. And there seemed to be this sort of rejection of Thatcherism, it seemed to me. So to be a little provocative here, I mean, perhaps she is populist, or at least it sounds like she's doing exactly what Donald Trump did. And that is to say, look, it's unacceptable right. that this loses globalization. I'm going to stand up for, you know, the old factory worker who has lost his job and is now unemployed. I'm going to bring back jobs to people. We're not going to let people be left behind. And then he tries to ram a health reform through Congress, which would give huge tax cuts to the richest and be terrible for everybody else. And is now preparing to do the same with the tax reform that, that hugely benefits billionaires and multimillionaires, which, which gives over 99% of benefits to the top 1%, right. um, and, and doesn't benefit anybody else, or barely benefits anybody else. And Theresa May seems to be doing the same thing. You're right, she stands outside number 10, and she has this rhetoric about, I'm going to help everybody, but her policies seem of the old cut, and, and actually very extreme in the British case. I mean, I mean, in some ways, as extreme as anything that Margaret Thatcher did. Well, quite. This, this was exactly where I was going with this. I mean, I suppose whether you call May populist or not depends to some extent you know, on your definition of populism. But I was going to make exactly this point that you see the same thing in both cases, in the cases of Trump and, and the May administration, that on the one hand, you have, as you've suggested, you know, these policies that seem not so much to be the end of neoliberalism, but neoliberalism on steroids, whether it's deregulation, tax cuts, and so on. But at the same time, in both cases, and, and for different reasons as well, I mean, May, I think, because she sort of has to do these things in the sort of post-Brexit environment in Britain, and, and Trump, because he wanted to do these things and campaigned on that basis. But nevertheless, you have an element of uh, the policy of both governments that is sort of anti-globalizational, that sort of goes in the direction of deglobalization. And this leads me to wonder whether actually globalization, at least what Danny Roderick calls hyper-globalization, on the one hand, and neoliberalism on the other hand, don't automatically go together. And both the May government and the Trump administration seem to me to suggest, to, to throw up this question about whether what we might see is some weird combination of deglobalization with neoliberalism on steroids. So instead of the old uh, dream of one part of the left of socialism in one country, 
neoliberalism in one country. You're suggesting that we neoliberalism in one country. Exactly. So neoliberalism in one country is the term that immediately comes to mind. Or the other term that comes to my mind is national neoliberalism. Now, (laughs) I'm not sure if that's even possible or what that would look like. It leads me to wonder whether this might be what emerges from the Trump administration. Everybody seems to be thinking along these lines that that there's an optimistic scenario and a pessimistic scenario or a kind of a radical Trump and a moderate Trump. And Tom Wright of the Brookings Institution had a piece recently where he even talked about Trump as as Jekyll and Hyde, literally split personalities. Mm. I wonder, and it's not just Trump himself, it's also the different people and factions within the Trump administration. So uh, Steve Bannon and Peter Navarro on the kind of extreme end and James Mattis and Gary Cohn, for example, on the more moderate end. And there's you know, mm. clearly a battle going on between these different factions. But my instinct is that it's not going to be one or the other. What's going to happen, just because of the nature of the way government works and the way that these different factions will fight, is that there will be some kind of compromise. And so what emerges is perhaps not the optimistic scenario or the pessimistic scenario or the moderate or the radical Trump administration. It's something in the middle. And this again brings me back to national neoliberalism. That what you have is you have a compromise where the traditional neoliberals in the Trump administration, they get tax cuts and deregulation. But at the same time, you have a mercantilist approach to trade driven by Navarro and Bannon. And what emerges is whatever this exactly looks like, something like national neoliberalism. To put it very simply, you follow an economic policy that is driven very much by corporate interests but they're just American corporate interests. So if you look at the way that Trump is taking on Germany, that's quite interesting in that respect, because it's not just a question of to what extent do you, for example, give companies tax breaks. It's also a question of which companies from which countries get tax breaks. And and there's a little bit of a tension, I think, because Trump says, you know, his approach, he tweeted this uh, at one point, the approach is to buy American and hire American. But those are two slightly different things. If the approach focuses on hiring American, then German companies and the German government can say, look, we're creating thousands of jobs in America. You know, they can deal with that. But if the priority is buy American, in other words, to try to promote American companies, for example, American car companies at the expense of German car companies. And he suggested, for example, in one interview with Built and the Times that, you know, there were too many German cars on Fifth Avenue. That suggests that he's going in that direction. There's nothing then that, you know, German companies or the German government can do about that. In other words, it's not Hmm. simply about bringing manufacturing jobs back to the US. It's specifically about promoting American brands. That's a national neoliberal policy, it seems to me. So I want to get to Germany in a moment. But before we do that, I'm trying to think of, you know, I mean, what you're describing sounds pretty horrific to me, right? You sort of get rid of the best aspects of globalization. And at the same time, you double down on the worst aspects of neoliberalism. Exactly. Exactly. So you wind up in a world in which you don't have the real benefits of globalization. It's less likely that you contribute to, to the development of poor countries abroad. You actually don't give consumers the benefits of cheaper goods and so on. So you're giving up a lot of economic dynamism in the long run. So there's lots of bad things here. And yet you're in a society in which the very rich profit even more and the poor in some ways get even less protection. So this is pretty dystopian. But of course, we know that dystopias are usually the inverse of utopias that people have painted. And here I wonder whether we can use the dystopia you've painted in order to arrive at a utopia, which is to say, so perhaps if there's national neoliberalism, which is 
full-on neoliberalism without globalization, what we should be trying to construct instead is the inverse, yes. which is full globalization, but without neoliberalism. So I guess my question is, what would that look like? Is that possible? Uh, well, I, I think it's easier, to, in the case of the utopia, I think it's easier to say what it looks like than I haven't yet come up with a name for it. I think, but, so, <laughs> well, you, you tell me what it looks like. I, I, well, I, well, I've, I've got, I've got right now to, to hazard a name. <laughs> I've got two sort of. I mean, the two things that immediately fall into my mind. I mean, one is just literally to to reverse the terms. So you know, instead of national neoliberalism, international something, and and insofar as there's an opposite of neoliberalism, I suppose it's Keynesianism, right? So international Keynesianism. But maybe another way is to sort of reverse the the order of the two terms. So it, it's something, and this isn't my term, but others on the centre left have used this term before. But something like progressive globalisation. And I think it's fairly clear what that looks like, which is that you, you you essentially do follow a liberal trade policy as opposed to a mercantilist trade policy. You are in favour of removing barriers to the movement of capital, goods and people. And one of the things I think you want to do as part of that is to balance more the movement of these three things, because, you know, clearly barriers to the movement of capital and goods have gone further than barriers to the to the movement of people so you want to restore that balance but also there may be i think i think one of the very interesting questions about progressive globalization is well i suppose the the, the obvious thing is that you need to find ways of of helping the losers from from globalization stabilizing mechanisms in individual uh, nation states but but i think the really interesting question which Danny Roderick's work focuses on is whether actually progressive globalization might mean moderate globalization rather than hyperglobalization. So there's a lot of terms going on here. What would this look like? like tell me some policy ideas. If I was, you know, signing up to progressive globalization, first of all, what does that mean in domestic policy? Before we get to the international order and okay. trade rules and so on, what would that mean for the kind of economic policy that an American government, a British government, a German government should put in place? Well, okay, exactly. So, the, so there's a national dimension and an international dimension. At the national level, if what trade liberalisation does is to create winners and losers, I mean, it leads to a restructuring of, of economies, national economies, and that creates winners and, and losers, then it's simply about taking various measures at the national level to help the losers from globalization, from trade liberalization adjust. And here, I think it's quite interesting if you compare Europe and the United States, because in general, it's it's sort of said that Europeans do a better job of compensating the losers. But the way we do that is essentially through the welfare state. By the way, this is one of the lessons of, of Brexit, is that what I think we did in Britain, but but I think also elsewhere in Europe, is we say to people who um, lose their jobs because either of, because of, of technological change or because of foreign competition through trade liberalisation, and often these two things kind of go hand in hand. Again, it's one of these false oppositions, I think. Actually, it's both of these things at, at the same time. What we say to the people who lose their jobs, for example, in manufacturing, as a result of, of these changes, is essentially, well, you're never going to get another job, but you can live off the dole. And, and actually, um, I, I think one of the, one of the messages that, that people in, in some of the parts of Britain that voted to leave sent was, we, we're not really, that's not really good enough. Um, and, and in an interesting way, I think actually the, the United States, although it doesn't have that safety net, so in some ways people are worse off when they lose their jobs in manufacturing. You do have trade adjustment assistance in the US, which is kind of notorious for not being very effective, but at least it has the aspiration 
to retrain people so that they can get other kinds of jobs. So I think the real challenge is to develop that approach rather than just saying, let's have a welfare state, a safety net for people who are the losers from globalization. I think we need to think more about how we actually make trade adjustment assistance more effective and how we can actually find ways to create work for people who lose jobs as a consequence of globalization. So on the international level, what would it look like? So in what ways would the rules of a global economy, broadly speaking, have to change? Danny Broderick has literally written the book on this. And I think that the the difficult question that, that his work raises is, do you need to dial back globalization? actually? Have we gone too far in globalization in some respects? Um, and can you dial it back without an unraveling of the whole system that then takes you back to the 1930s and trade wars and so on? And supporters of globalization, it seems to me, are very, very resistant to even having a debate about this. They're so scared about exactly this happening that the moment you start to dial back globalization a little bit, the whole thing unravels. I think that's the conversation we need to be having about whether in some respects we've gone too far and you need to go you need to go backwards. So what would be some examples on which you think we should at least think about going backwards. I want to think about how this economic piece fits into a wider debate about the liberal world order. So I've made the argument, you've made the argument, a bunch of people have made the argument that the liberal world order is now really at risk, that, that the United States was responsible for providing certain public goods, for example, you know, to make sure that ships could uh, navigate around the world's oceans safely. So when there was pirates in Somalia starting to attack cargo ships, the United States spent, you know, a lot of money and actually risked the lives of its own soldiers in order to get rid of that problem. And that's something from which not just the United States profits, but anybody who engages in international trade profits. And obviously the biggest public good that the United States provided is around security, especially in Western Europe and, and in parts of Asia where it allowed all of the prosperity and all of the affluence and trade and so on in Europe in part because uh, the existence of NATO, um, led mostly by American military commitments, pacified Europe and allowed that that prosperity to develop. And the the crucial thing about these public goods is that from an American perspective, it involves a lot of short-term sacrifice. It involves a lot of spending money today in a way that in a complicated roundabout way actually profits the United States hugely in the long run, but that's not very visible. What's very visible is that we spend a lot of money on our military and other countries don't. Uh, we, we do a lot, say, to, to clear up the, the pirates in Somalia and other countries don't. So aren't we the sucker? Aren't other countries just free riding on our efforts? And, and I think you see very clearly on trade, on development aid, on uh, certainly NATO, uh, the Trump administration saying, you know what, perhaps we shouldn't be providing these public goods. Perhaps we should step back from that. And that really threatens to unravel the whole of the liberal world order. So so what I want to know from you, Hans, is what about the position of countries like like India, where we've spent a little bit of time where, where, where one of your parents comes from, that I think have often been critical of the liberal world order. And part of the reason why they've been critical is that they uh, associate it to some degree with the with history of colonialism and see it as something that's been put in place by Great Britain, by the United States, in a way that they didn't have a real say in. But countries that might also really actually, in other ways, profit from the liberal world order. And my sense, and this is informed by your views in many ways, is that now there's a risk that these people, and also, by the way, the far left in the United States that criticizes the liberal world order, 
it's going to keep pushing on the liberal order, to keep pushing on it, because in the past they could push on it and make a dent in it that sort of improved it a little bit, but they knew it was ultimately stable. And so we never really thought about what would happen if the liberal world order went away and there wasn't anybody around anymore who can create global public goods. And you suddenly have a world that's run not by the United States and Britain and so on, but by uh, China and Iran and Russia. And so how can we convince countries like India, Indonesia, Nigeria to get a stake in the liberal international order? So they see it as something that they should defend? And to what degree do we need to reform the liberal international order in order to give them that stake? So I think that's the crucial thing, is that we need to reform it as well as defend it. And in fact, I think we need to reform it in order to save it, the liberal international order. If we just defend it and if we become uncritical defenders of the status quo, uncritical defenders of the liberal international order as it currently is, then I think that's probably the best way to destroy the liberal international order. And the reason for that, I think, is because people in countries like India, and and I happen to think that that countries like India are absolutely crucial, not just because my father's Indian, but because I think uh, what, what some people have called swing states, large democracies outside of the West, like Brazil and India, are just the, the pivotal states on which the future of a liberal international order depends. People in those countries are not entirely wrong, it seems to me, with their criticisms of the liberal international order. The story you just told about the liberal international order in which the US provides public goods is incredible selfless and make sacrifices is not wrong, but I think it's not the whole story because the US plays this sort of dual role and, and other Western powers, to, to a lesser extent, are part of this story too. That On the one hand, the US has this function as a hegemon, which is the role you describe, public goods provision, essentially. But the US is also a great power that acts in its own national interests. And this is what makes this story of the liberal international order so complicated, I think, because the US is doing both of these things at the same time. In a way, it's inherent to the role of of hegemon, that in a way, the trade-off for setting the norms and the rules and creating the institutions of the liberal international order is that you get benefits from that, whether it's in terms of the role of, of the dollar as the global reserve currency, um, which you know the French famously called exorbitant privilege, or in all kinds of other ways, the US benefits disproportionately from this liberal international order as the hegemon. So for anybody who reads your work, uh, you know, the mention of, of hegemony uh, actually raises some some interesting questions about Germany. So I want to get I, your I view. I was hoping you know, we would avoid oh, talking about Germany. <laughs> yeah, I know. This is, so, so Hans, for listeners, I think is the person who can go and speak to the German foreign policy community, and uh, which tends to be quite consensual, and I think has has a relatively narrow band of views which are admissible. And and Hans can sort of go and be the spoiler, the spanner in the works, and. And, and actually get listened to, which is not an easy task in well, that context. Although, but, although it doesn't but, always feel that way. Uh, oh, uh, you know, I, I can assure you it's the case. But um, a lot of people have been saying that with Britain, you know, busy Brexiting and, and Theresa May's government taking this hard right turn, and obviously the election of Donald Trump in the United States, you know, the leader of a free world now is Angela Merkel. Yes. Give me your best demolishment of that, <laughs> your best demolition of that argument in two minutes. Well, actually, this is a lovely way to sort of come full circle. This almost sounds as if we had a plan for this podcast. I had a plan. Yeah, right. You did. Okay, great. Um, because I think in a way, this is where this, you know, we, we started by talking about the differences between the phenomenon or phenomena of populism in these different geographical 
locations. And I think, in a way, the idea that Merkel is the leader of the free world is sort of where you end up when you look at populism in this very binary way. So there's Brexit and there's Trump and there's the AFD in Germany and the Front National and there's Viktor Orban and those are all the bad guys. And on the other side, you have all the, the good guys. And so clearly, you know, the sort of most powerful figure, at least in the West, among the good guys is, An- is Angela Merkel. And so therefore, she's the, the, the last woman standing or the leader of the free world or whatever other phrase one wants to use. And I think in the process, what we end up doing is buying into this very binary logic, which as far as I can see, comes from the populists themselves who say, there is now an elemental struggle between nationalists and globalists. And they say we're the nationalists or the patriots, as Marine Le Pen puts it, and the globalists are the bad guys. And I think what too many of us in the sort of Western foreign policy establishment do is to implicitly accept that binary logic and say, well, we're the globalists and we're the good guys and the nationalists are the bad guys. And I want to insist that there's a there's a space in between where you can make much more nuanced arguments where you say, for example, I'm in favour of globalisation, but I'm critical of hyper-globalisation or neoliberalism. And, and that, that brings me back to Merkel, because there's an amnesia in the way that people talk about Merkel now, as if history began with the refugee crisis. It's to a large extent, on that basis, that people say she's this liberal figure is because she, in quotes, opened Germany's doors to refugees in the summer of 2015. And all the much, much more problematic things that she has done, particularly in the context of the euro crisis, are simply forgotten. So what are those? I mean, what are some of the feelings of German foreign policy? And and why is it that those aren't just feelings of Angela Merkel, but actually show that Germany just can't be the leader of a free world? Well, exactly. The second reason why this particular designation of Merkel as leader of the free world is so absurd is that that concept obviously referred to the president of the United States during the Cold War. And the reason that the president of the United States was the leader of the free world was because essentially... The President of the United States was prepared to use American military power to defend democracy. And the idea that Merkel is willing or able to do that is so absurd. This is one of the big arguments between Merkel and Trump now is that Germany is a country that free rides on the United States as a security provider. So the idea that Germany could suddenly turn into a country that would provide security for other people when it spends less than 1.2% of GDP on defence, it's so absurd. Actually, it seems to me that the French president and the British prime minister have just as good a legitimate acclaim to be the leader of the free world if you want to go down that road as Merkel. And she herself said this, that this is an absurd, grotesque idea. But I think the reality is that since the election of Trump, the free world has no leader. I think pretending that Merkel can replace the US president, I think, is is a way of pretending that things are better than they are and that there, there is still kind of a leader of the free world. The reality is if the US president doesn't play that role, the free world has no leader. Well, that's a, a nice, sobering uh, conclusion to our conversation. Um, Albeit a pessimistic one. I, I was expecting nothing less from you. <laughs> but thank you so much for this wonderful conversation, Hans. And I know that, uh, that we'll be carrying on this conversation and I hope that the listeners will, will carry it on as well by, by writing in and sharing their thoughts. Um, Absolutely. Thank you so much, everybody, for, for listening to The Good Fight. Um, lots of you have been spreading the word about the show. Um, if you too have been enjoying it, please be like them, 
rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter, call your senator or congressman to tell them about the show. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to thegoodfight at newamerica.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org. 